0: Hello and welcome. Welcome back to the Bar Chats and Viral Rights, everyone. My name is Jayao from the Bar Council Environment and Climate Change Committee, and it is a great pleasure to welcome all of you to the webinar this evening. If it's your first time joining us, this webinar is part of a five-episode series that aims to promote curiosity and healthy discussion about our right to be involved in the protection and management of our environment. This is a project by Malaysians for Malaysians. It's a series that is not your usual legal seminar where experts talk about specialist topics or the latest developments in the legal field. Instead, it is a series where exceptional human beings sit down together and share their knowledge and experience on environmental justice with lay Malaysians. Two weeks ago, we started off with episode zero, our prelude episode which was a discussion of how we ordinary Malaysians can direct our frustration and perhaps helplessness from cases like Sungai Kim Kim, Sungai Gong, towards something more constructive. And then in episode one, we looked at where our environmental rights come from and what are they. Flowing from these two episodes, we are now ready to start with episode two, how does the law protect the environment? Our moderator for this episode is Amin Abdul-Majid, Amin is a partner at Zaid Ibrahim & Co. He regularly advises on renewable energy projects in Malaysia and the ASEAN region, and he has contributed to our country's renewable energy laws. Amin is also a member of our Bar Council Environment and Climate Change Committee. Now, before we start, I would like to mention two things. First, the thoughts and opinions of our panelists are um, personal to themselves and do not represent the organizations that they are associated with. Our webinars are meant to get people to ask more questions, um, hopefully better questions, rather than providing specific answers. So do not take anything mentioned here as legal advice for your specific situation. Now, secondly, we would love to hear from you. So please share your thoughts and your questions with us via the Q&A function on Zoom. And for those who are joining us from Facebook Live, post them in the comments section. All right. And uh, those on social media, you can tag us with the handles hashtag bar chats, hashtag and viral rights, and hashtag BCECCC. With that, I will now hand it over to Amin to get things rolling. Over to you now, Amin.
1: Thank you, Jayao. I think you can hear me fine, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Loud and clear. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to the panelists. Now, Malaysia has a population estimated at 32.7 million, as at 2020. Malaysia has an abundance of natural resources with fertile soil for agriculture, large amounts of oil and gas, and also rich minerals underground. And we are extracting value from these gifts of nature as we should. But as our populations grow, we're seeing the stress that we have had on our country's environment. Unfortunately, we have a long list of environmental disasters. Um, Jaya has mentioned a couple, but there was also the Highland Towers tragedy in 1993, the Taman Hillview landslide in 2002, the Ululangat mudslide in 2011, and of course the pollution yeah, that we've just heard. And that's not to mention, but has now become the almost routine water disruptions of the Klang Valley. Now, all these can be directly traced to human action as our fellow Malaysians carry out economic activities with little regard to the environment. So what can we do about it? Do we have laws that protect the environment? And how do they work? And how do we ensure sustainability? That's making sure that the use of the environment by 32.7 million Malaysians today does not prejudice the use by future generations. All these are big questions, but they can be broken down into four broad parts. First, we will look at the main government bodies that are responsible for managing and protecting our natural environment. Next, we explore whether the decisions and actions of these institutions are open to question and how public consultation can come into play. Then we will look, look at the role of the judicial arm of the legal system in protecting the environment. And finally, we'll look at how the law works to make wrongdoers accountable. And with me today are three eminent panelists who will help me answer these questions. Ivy Wong Abdullah, Dato' Ma Kwai, and Dr. G. Balamurugan, welcome. They are no strangers in the area of the environment and law. Ivy Wong Abdullah is currently the lead of the environment pillar at Yayasan Hasana of Kazan National Berhad. She provides leadership and technical input on the environment focus area. Now, this includes building partnerships with key stakeholders in the environment and conservation arena in Malaysia and abroad to achieve Hassan's mission to protect Malaysia's natural capital and resources through conservation efforts and the building of environment consciousness. IV has over 20 years of work experience on topics of biodiversity, and forestry management, and has engaged local and international NGOs, state, national, and regional governments, and the private sector in Malaysia. Ivy was in fact the 2016 Asia Fellow of the Low Emissions De- Development Strategy, Global Partnership Program, and a recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Datuk Mah Kwai, as many here will know, is a former Court of Appeal judge. Datuk was called to the English Bar and the Malaysian Bar he served in the Judicial and Legal Services of Malaysia and subsequently set up his own firm before appointed a Judicial Commissioner of the High Court of Malaya in 2010 and a judge of the same court in, uh, in 2011. He was elevated to the Court of Appeal in 2012. Upon his retirement from the judiciary, Dato' returned to legal practice. Among his many roles today, Dato' is an Adjunct Professor of Law and Government at HALP University and a commissioner in Suhakam. That Oma was appointed a member of the Institutional Reforms Committee by the Prime Minister of Malaysia after the 14th general election to make recommendations for institutional reforms in the country. Now, Dr. G. Balamurugan is the managing director of ERE Consulting Group. Over the past 30 years, he has been actively involved in the planning and management of environmental and natural resources in the region. He has planned and managed over 250 consultancy projects in Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Myanmar. And this covers a wide range of sectors from infrastructure, biodiversity, transportation, energy, to water resources. He has also served uh, um, on a wide range of government agencies, private sector, uh, uh, and non-governmental organizations across Asia as advisor. Now, so to start, perhaps I should ask Datuk Mah to discuss the main governmental bodies responsible for managing and protecting our natural environment. Uh, Datuk Mah,
2: thank you very much, uh, Amin, and uh, very good evening to everyone who is uh, listening to this uh, program. Uh, allow me firstly to thank uh, Jaya and the Bar Council for organising this uh, series of uh, bar chats. I think they are all very useful and uh, helpful to create awareness of the uh, environmental laws and uh, the, the situations that we are in from time to time. Um, allow me, uh, I mean, I know we are not to go too deeply into the uh, legal aspects of it, but um, with a topic like how does a law protect the environment? Uh, I think I have to very quickly touch on some of the uh, main uh, acts that uh, prevail, some of the main statutes, and then uh, ask the questions, Uh, who are the protectors and who are the decision-makers and so on. Um, In fact, when I was talking to a friend and uh, told him about uh, this evening's uh, bar chat and uh, told him the title was, how does the law protect the environment? Um, The cynical reply was, does it? (laughs) So I suppose we will have to approach it from that uh, point of view because um, whether the law protects or does not protect, we still have to uh, realize or understand what are the, um, uh, what the laws are that uh, prevail. So very quickly, I think the first law that comes to mind when we talk about environment, uh, environmental protection in Malaysia is the uh, Environmental Quality Act, that's a uh, 1974 act. So it's a fairly old act and under it, you have the regulations and you have the various uh, orders and so on. Uh, then we have the Protection of uh, Wildlife Act, 72 act, uh, the National Forestry Act, 1984, Fisheries Act, 1985, the National Parks Act, uh, 1980, and also the Town and Country Planning uh, Act of 1976. So one will note that uh, these acts were passed quite some time ago. It's not as though it's something that happened uh, overnight. And uh, when we ask this question, does the law protect the environment? My quick answer or short answer is th- there is a law. The law is there. But whether it uh, works to protect the environment, I think it is not so much uh, whether there's a statute to uh, protect uh, uh, a particular aspect of the environment, but whether it has been been properly enforced. Then the next question to ask ourselves is, who are the protectors? Who are these people that uh, ought to protect the environment? Again, a quick answer would be, uh, it has to be uh, the government bodies, the government uh, agencies, because they are the planners, uh, they are the managers, and uh, they should um, be uh, 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 doing their best to protect the environment. But at the same time, I would expand this category, not just to the government and uh, statutory bodies, I would uh, definitely say uh, the protectors are ourselves, the NGOs and the uh, CSOs, because all of us are, uh, have, a, have a role to play in this. Um, just like in the fight against covid-19 we are all front uh, liners so i would say when it comes to protecting the environment we too are the uh, uh, front liners now uh, speaking personally um, my my uh, association with the uh, law on environment and protection of the environment is true very much to uh, suhakam uh, of late uh, because in suhakam uh, the right to clean water the right to uh, uh, um, food and uh, health and so on. These are fundamental rights. They are basic human rights. So when we talk about the environment and we say that we, we deserve to have clean water and when there is pollution in the rivers and uh, water plants shut down, then of course we say that the, our human rights have been infringed. So really uh, we have to look wider than just what the uh, law is in the Environmental Quality Act. We have to look at it from the, uh, from the aspect of how it affects the ordinary uh, person. To a uh, flat dweller who lives on the tenth floor, who doesn't have the lifts uh, to go up to his floor, and he has to carry buckets of water up, uh, that's a terrible situation uh, to be in. We are we are living in the tropics, there's no shortage of water, and yet uh, we, the right to clean water has been affected because of polluters. So uh, this is a very important. Uh, decision that we have to, uh, uh, to do to, to support the uh, government in the management. Then, yeah. of course, we have the uh, decision makers. Again, the question is, who are these people? Are they faceless? Are they nameless? Uh, are they sitting behind their desks in a department and nobody knows who they are? Well, the, again, uh, this is where uh, the need for transparency is very important. We have to know who the decision makers are, because whatever they decide will affect our uh, quality of the, uh, the the environment. That's and, a good point, uh, Dato. Yeah. And
1: now that's the, the very point I was I was going to ask um, Ivy to to uh, speak on because of a uh, um, experience with the government ministries. Ivy, okay. would, you, would you like to comment?
3: Thanks, mean uh, Good evening, everybody, and assalamualaikum. Uh, uh, thank you to Bar Council uh, for this. Uh, Sort of very uh, sort of very uh, informal chats about uh, the rights uh, and also uh, how does the law protect our environment. Uh, following up from what Datoma was saying, uh, we have uh, the kind of institutions uh, that looked at protecting our laws, um, are also uh, what we call the ministries. Uh, We have the Ministry of Environment and Water. I think that's the first, also the focal point. Um, And I think by and large, ministries that we have in Malaysia uh, sort of develop policies, um, provides guidelines, and also bring uh, the laws that we have to be enforced. Uh, As Dr. Ma has mentioned, we have those laws uh, since the 70s. And as the years go by, we do have the revision to those um, acts, and it's been... Uh, uh, how should I say, passed by parliaments, and with that provision, I think that EQA was the, the, I think, the latest that got uh, amended, uh, uh, expanding its scope, right? Uh, So that comes under the Ministry of Environment and Water. So we have also the Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources, and that looks at how our resources uh, in the country, be it forests, uh, be it uh, minerals, uh, are managed uh, in the country, and... uh, providing guidelines and also, um, uh, how should I say, uh, provisions in how they should be uh, extracted or in terms of natural resources. Uh, We have also various other ministries um, that are in a way responsible for resources like Ministry of Plantation, Industries and Commodities. Um, So they are guided by certain guidelines of uh, EIAs uh, when they are looking at developing uh, certain projects and also uh, development, as you
1: say that. Thanks, Ivy. In fact, um, I think our next section also will be talking about how the the laws, I guess, are revised and how the public can can contribute towards that. But, uh, Doctor, in the meantime, Doctor Malam uh, Morgan, perhaps you might have something to say about um, your experience with the government agencies that you've been dealing with.
4: Oh, th- thank you, Amin. Uh, good evening, everyone to answer your question i my simple answer will be there everyone is in charge and yet no one is in charge uh, many different agencies and ministries and departments have jurisdiction at the same time there are a lot of gaps and it's complicated by the fact that jurisdiction there are different jurisdiction between the federal and state governments So it's not a very straightforward answer who's in charge. For example, if a factory pollutes, department environment can prosecute. Then you need to ask the question, why is that factory in the wrong location in the first place? That goes into the jurisdiction maybe town and country planning, or even state governments. So it's a lot more complicated than just one department being responsible uh, we need to look at the entire spectrum from the time land and land use is planned until the factory starts operating so it goes there are a range of agencies and departments involved and I think we need to look at every one of their jurisdiction and responsibilities as well
1: now thanks dr Bala. Um, I guess from what we gather, from what you, the three of you have said, it, it's clear that we do have the laws. It's clear that they've been there in the ni- since the nineteen seventies, and it's clear we also have the government agencies uh, and government ministries that are responsible for their the implementation of these laws. And like Dr. Tomac correctly pointed out, um, the public also has a role to play, uh, but it's quite. Um, I guess uh, what is apparent is that the first step still is that on the part of the ministry, they do have a public duty stemming from the laws that exist um, to, to protect the environment. But the issue that has arisen, which as Ivy has, uh, has highlighted, is that sometimes you know, they're just not up to date or they're just not um, suitable for uh, the s- specific situation that, that um, we have. So perhaps uh, Ivy, you would like to have say something about that?
3: Thanks, Amin. Um, as, as what um, Bala has mentioned, uh, we have uh, those agencies. Uh, and, and I think backing up, I think Malaysia, as we know, we have, uh, I would say, three regions. We have Peninsula Malaysia, Sabah, and Sarawak. Certain laws do apply, uh, but not all laws apply in a, in, across three regions. Uh, for example, the Forestry uh, National Forestry Act, 1984. That's only applicable for mm-hmm. Peninsula Malaysia. So I think this has has um, has, has a specific uh, impact on um, how you can apply them uh, with regards to how this has um, how should I say developed. Uh, and and if you look at the Peninsula side in terms of states, um, Selangor has uh, their uh, forestry act that looks at having a uh, component of uh, public consultations, right, in any uh, given land or a given forest reserve that the state wants to open up for development or for any activities, within the provision of its uh, state enactment, it has to look at having a public consultations, right? But that is only unique to Selangor. Other states in Peninsula do not have that. And the, the Mother Act, as they call it, the National Forestry Act uh, 1984, uh, does not have that provision. So until and unless that main mother body, that mother act has that provision, then the, the states can take it up. But uh, Selangor on itself has its own, how should I say, they went ahead and made that uh, a component of their act, uh, which is good. So Selangor is leading the way in terms of having that sort of consultations.
1: Okay. Now, now that we know Selangor has, is, has um, carried out a very commendable act, um, is there like uh, any avenue for the normal person, the lay person, uh, to question um, what what other governments are doing? So, for instance, is there an avenue for them to put some pressure for the other state governments to also follow the steps of the of the Selangor government?
2: Sorry, is that question addressed to me? I yes, yes. Oh, okay. Um, well, I think um, when it comes to um, the the role played by the public, um, the public should take it upon themselves as watchdogs. And uh, it is for them to, for us, to actually uh, keep questioning the uh, state authorities. And um, uh, when I say state authorities, it's not just the state government, but the uh, federal government as well, because as we do know, uh, there are three uh, levels uh, uh, working together, you get the federal level, state level, and the uh, local authorities. Uh, in fact, the local authority, local government authority, that, that's a very, very important uh, stage because they are right at the front uh, and, and um, they are on the ground. So um, it's not just the state of uh, slango but uh, since it's this uh, environment is a national issue, it should be um, applicable in all the states. And I think the bottom line, uh, I mean, I would like to uh, say, uh, is that it's not so much whether the law protects. I think while we realize and appreciate the law is there, what's really important to ensure that enforcement is taken seriously. Um, The enforcers, the implementers of the various policies, various programs, they take it uh, seriously. And when there are breaches uh, committed by uh, polluters and all the uh, uh, people who cause the pollution, um, they should come down very hard and uh, have the full force of law um, taken against these people. Uh, and um, so really, it's not just at the state level, but it should be taken at a national level. Thanks.
1: And then, um, so in terms of, um, you mentioned just now that the public should uh, take a, uh, an active role in protecting the environment, right? So I think that also uh, links very nicely to what Ivy was talking about public consultation as well. And I, I maybe um, Dr. Bala, you might be able to share any uh, public consultation experiences that, that you've noticed uh, Malaysia carry out in, in recent years.
4: Sorry, Dr. Dr. Bala, I think you're yeah. on mute. Yeah. yeah, thanks Amin. I, I think Malaysia has made some progress in terms of public participation, uh, compared to say 20 years ago, there was hardly any. But if you see now, there are many avenues for public to give their feedback. Uh, I will mention the forestry and I uh, as an example. For many, many years, the Town and Country Planning Department has a component of public participation. Every plan done at the local and state levels, are open for public review and comment. And these are done very regularly. Uh, The Department of Environment, under the environmental impact assessment order, all EIA reports are public documents, and they are usually open for a month for public to read and comment. Uh, Under the Railway Act, all railway projects are required to be displayed to the public for three months for public to comment. So there are many avenues. I'll just give you an example. Uh, The KL Singapore high-speed rail, you're aware of that, right? So when it was being planned in 2018, the public consultation period attracted 30,000 public comments. So that's substantial. But I think what we need to do is, I think while there are platforms and avenues for public consultation, public to give their views, I think a lot of members of the public are not aware of existence of these platforms. And I think we perhaps need to uh, publicize this a bit more so that public can give their comments when the platforms are already there.
1: Thanks, Dr. Bala. In fact, your point about the 30,000 questions uh, is is really relevant because there is a question right now that I noticed. Uh, There's a comment because we talked about the Slago government and Ivy had pointed out how they do consultation. But a question raised by Justin here is that sometimes, you know, there is is public consultation, but what's less clear is how the slango government are obligated to respect the will of the public, which emerges from these consultations. Now, um, of course, the the one issue is the, how does anyone answer 30,000 questions? right? But then perhaps uh, Ivy, would you like to, to give your views on that?
3: Um, yes, um, I think in terms of uh, the implementation of the public consultation is, I think, very much dependent on the, 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 the person, the, the department that's doing it, right? How far do they take their consultations in its earnest, right? But as a public uh, or a citizen, at least I know That there is that platform for me to voice my concerns regarding a project, right? Uh, That's very important versus where there's no platform at all and there is no provision for it and they just carry on doing what they want, right? So at least uh, there is a platform but I think the the, the question is in terms of how uh, the authorities are uh, taking the inputs and the comments provided and not merely just ticking a box you know the law says you have to do a public consultation They're doing it, but whether it is uh, by uh, by the intent to improve on the project and to understand the challenges, uh, versus then just ticking a box, right? Um, so I, I guess it all depends on uh, the the capacity and the capability of the agencies that's doing that job as well. Um, you, you know, you you don't expect overnight when that law gets passed that the, the department agencies themselves know what to do. Uh, sometimes it is very much they don't know how to do it.
1: Okay, so I guess on the part of the government, sorry, on the part of the public also, there's a responsibility for them to be a bit, I guess, more understanding of the pressures that the government might be under when they open these kind of consultations. I also remember in the uh, episode that we had um, last week with Dr. Shah Salim Faruqi, he did say for example, with responsibilities with with rights comes responsibilities so if you as and as much as you like being able to view your thoughts I think it should be a bit more informed uh, comments as well but then on the issue of uh, the decision that is made by the government um, there is a legal avenue on the part of uh, the people as well so if we are not happy with a uh, with the decision that's made, there is something called a judicial review. Datuk Mah, can you uh,
2: shed some light on what it means? Sure. Um, uh, uh, judicial review is a uh, very effective uh, legal process uh, where we uh, are able to actually uh, get the departments, like ministries to uh, court and uh, to query the process of the decision making more curing the, uh, uh, the process rather than the decision itself. Uh, we want to know, uh, in, in, it's all about transparency. We want to know how they arrived at a decision. Yeah, as, as I mentioned just now, rather than the uh, decision itself. So um, this is uh, a process that is uh, heard by a High Court judge uh, and um, um, all will be laid bare when the counsel for uh, the uh, plaintiff, is uh, making the case and asking uh, the uh, departments to answer. So this is a very effective uh, process. Is is judicial review common in Malaysia? Oh yes, uh, quite often uh, we have uh, reviews of uh, ministerial uh, decisions and so on, and uh, uh, it's the, it's always popularly known as the JR JR process, Order Fifty Three, and. Um, uh, uh, this is something which uh, parties uh, go to court. I think related to that, if I may, just uh, add a point Here is it's um, uh, very important to see who the plaintiff is. Yeah? Uh, because uh, if you're directly affected, of course, uh, you can be the plaintiff and uh, go for a judicial review. Uh, what if you are not directly affected? You are just a member of that community, uh, member of a group that may be affected. Then the question is whether you have the locus, the standing to go before the court, and uh, I think that is a very contentious uh, issue. Um, over the years, the courts have been quite strict about this and say, "Hey, look, you don't really have a, a right to come to uh, query the decision. Um, you're not directly affected." And some courts have actually said, hey, "You are a busybody," <laughs> you know. So, but I think uh, uh, luckily uh, over the years that that has test, the test. Of uh, local standard, the local uh, standing has been relaxed a bit, and uh, the courts do uh, take it very seriously and say, "Look, if you are a affected person, yeah, you can uh, bring a case to court." Uh, but that that deals with a lot more. Uh, I mean, the discussion on JR can be uh, much uh, uh, far-reaching and longer discussion needed. Yeah, yeah it probably won't be enough.
1: For this is, won't be enough for us to discuss it, right? But one one thing I do want to to uh, raise with you is, I noticed in uh, I believe it was episode zero our prelude, there were a lot of questions about oh we're f- afraid of retaliation if we do these things. Uh, um, what's your What's your views on that? Retaliation from uh, if if we ob- if we um, object or we protest against. Uh, actions that are done by either the government or specific ministries, Um, there's a fear of of
2: retaliation. (laughs) What's your view on that? I don't think we need to be too worried about that, should be too bothered. This is 2020 and uh, I think the government uh, ought to be alive to the uh, problems that the public face uh, if uh, one avenue is to go to court and uh, the other is that we complain and if there's any retaliation as you mentioned come to Sohakam, come and lodge a complaint with us and uh, we will hold inquiries we'll do the necessary to get a bottom of it and see who is co- really causing the uh, trouble because I think um, the, the, the government officials, they do realize, they do know that uh, their job is actually to help and protect the uh, public help to protect the environment. Uh, you may have uh, one or two wayward uh, officers, but um, I, I don't think we'll paint everybody with the same brush. And, uh, but uh, the short answer to that is that uh, uh, the access to court, that's very important. Right? the right to of access to courts and uh, right to uh, justice. Uh, we are getting there slowly and with good lawyers like yourself and everybody else in Bar Council, I think we can make a difference. Thanks, Dato. Um, now,
1: uh, the, that, I guess we can now segue to the, the last part of what we wanted to cover tonight, which was um, apart from what we've said, also, um, I've said, I mentioned earlier about the, the public protesting and objecting, there is also a legal system um, or a legal process that exists uh, for us to be able to put wrongdoers accountable. The government can prosecute offenders under criminal laws uh, through the laws that you've mentioned, Atoma. And um, we've also we are also aware of different uh, ministries and departments taking action. Now, um, I think Ivy is uh, has some issues <laughs> about that. I had some discussions with her earlier, and then she she does come from a point where she's quite frustrated with what's happening. Uh, can you share with us, Ivy?
3: Oh, wow, I'm in. Okay, um, Not to see. Okay, frustrated is one. But I think when we look at natural environment, uh, we have to look at as a whole system approach, right? Or, you know, in some ways, we look at a, a we we'll always say a whole nation approach. But if you bring it down to look at a, a certain uh, environment, we look at it from the point of whole uh, system of a uh, whole system or whole natural ecosystems. And how do we tackle it? Uh, that uh, there is that provision to protect it. And there's also a role for people, uh, the civil ser- uh, well, I say it, civil servants, but the public having a role to play in this, right? Where do they come in, right? And, and how, do, how, do, how do you look at um, identifying uh, what are the challenges and how do you then address them? Uh, be it through the law systems, um, but I think in the case of where we're going for is look at a particular river basin right? Uh, who holds jurisdiction over it? Um, how, f- Because you have to look at it from the point of where the source of it to where does it flow out to and really marked out who's inside that whole you know, left and right of the river systems, uh, What who controls it, who, which uh, local council manages it. Then we can look at how do we then work together to improve uh, the systems and the habitat that we're living in or the ecosystem that we're in.
1: Uh, What do you think, I mean, um, so we do have a role to play, but then uh, what do you think about the media and how um, uh, the role that they play to uh, kind of assist this process?
3: Well, I think everybody has a role to play, Um, even the media to highlight uh, the positive Mm -hmm. side and not just the negative sides, right? We have those parts of our country that is beautiful. The water system is amazing. But then when we come to the city, uh, the, 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 the rivers that flow through it, some cities have very nice river flow through it. Uh, some don't. Um, Slangor, unfortunately, you know, living here, we see most of our rivers polluted. It's overdevelopment, right? How do we address this? How do we then uh, mitigate all these issues? I think that needs to have a very more uh, open uh, uh, discussions between all parties uh, to try and find a, a solution to it.
1: Thanks, Ivy. Dr. Bala, any comments on your side? Uh,
4: okay, on the topic of enforcement, I, I think we need to give credit where it's due. Uh, if you're again looking at long-term patents, uh, if you look in the 1980s, hardly anyone went to court for environmental offenses. In the 90s, you start seeing one or two cases going in, a significant increase in the the year 2000 onwards. And now you are seeing lots of cases going to court and people are being fined substantial amounts. So there is a positive trend in terms of enforcement. Of course, it's not good enough, but it's definitely improving. But we also have to look into what are the challenges in enforcement. If somebody is polluting in Slango, that's probably the easiest offense to catch. But then sometimes they pollute at night. They just open the, <laughs> open the locks at night and release all the flow and no one is around. But a lot more complicated cases are like poaching, illegal hunting in the middle of our thick forest. You know, we have a lot of cases of poachers coming in from Thailand and Cambodia into our forest to take our wildlife. And those kinds of enforcement is, is very, very challenging. You're talking about rangers have to walk on foot for seven days to reach those sites. So there are obviously significant challenges. And I think many government agencies face constraints in terms of manpower and equipment. If you want to send a ranger in the middle of Tamanagara, either he walks seven days or you drop him on a helicopter and the Department of Wildlife doesn't have a helicopter. So these are some of the challenges and I think linked to the topic of public participation, I think the public has a role even in enforcement acting as eyes and ears but what we need to do is create platforms and networks so that public's input can be better utilized. At the moment, it's very ad hoc, but I think if we have a better system whereby public can complain, send a photograph, and it reaches the right person immediately, then I I think our enforcement will become better.
1: Thank you, Dr. Bala. You mentioned the, the environmental courts. I
2: think that Omar might, uh, might have something to say about that. Yes, uh, but before I uh, go into that, just to uh, elaborate on what uh, Dr. Bala has uh, mentioned, I think is absolutely uh, correct because the public are the eyes and the ears. But I find in my experience and uh, uh, living in a uh, fairly close community is that the role of the RAs, residential associations, residents associations. Uh, They are a very important uh, group of uh, people because they are in a community and you have representatives in a community. And the moment something uh, is not quite right within that area or even uh, the adjacent areas, you'll find people bringing issues up at the RA uh, meetings. So uh, then when a complaint is made as a group to say the local town council, I think that carries a bit more weight than just an individual who's making a complaint. So uh, RAs are quite uh, uh, useful in this respect. Uh, Yes, we were talking about the environment courts. Um, Now, as far as the uh, uh, court process, uh, earlier on I did mention about the uh, judicial review, that's uh, for cases going up to the High Court. But uh, when it comes to uh, offenses uh, against the various uh, acts, Uh, they don't uh, have to end up in the uh, High Court. Uh, Very often they're dealt with in the uh, Magistrates Court and in the uh, Sessions Courts. So what has happened uh, in in 2012, uh, the former Chief Justice actually uh, had uh, Magistrates Courts and Sessions Courts um, designated as environment courts. In fact, started off with 53 Magistrates Courts and 42 Sessions Courts. So they were very important because uh, these are courts at first instance, and you will deal with the whatever uh, legal complaints that are coming to court. And uh, the, But that was all for the criminal uh, side of things, criminal jurisdiction, um, meaning to say offenders will be prosecuted. And then in 2016, the jurisdiction was extended uh, to include civil jurisdiction. And now uh, Sessions courts, Magistrates courts, and the high courts have uh, this uh, jurisdiction. Uh, if I if I may interrupt you, if I yes.
1: may interrupt you there, right there, uh, Ma, I think uh, because our talk today is not just people from the bar council, uh, the uh, the bar council, perhaps uh, from the bar, I mean, uh, perhaps you could uh, tell for the benefit of everyone uh, yes. the difference. What what's this criminal law and civil law? What why how are they different?
2: Okay, fine, sure. Um, uh, criminal law, criminal offence, or criminal jurisdiction of the court is where. Uh, an offender is pulled up by the uh, enforcement uh, agency, they uh, brought to court, Uh, let's say uh, a person that has been caught doing open burning. Yeah, you're not supposed to open burning. Uh, The offender is brought to court, is brought to the magistrate's court. And when the case is proven against him, the penalty is usually a fine. Uh, I have not heard of any uh, offender for open burning being uh, imprisoned. And uh, when it's a fine, that penalty goes towards the government. It goes towards revenue. Yeah, it doesn't go to the courts, and uh, most certainly doesn't go to the uh, department. Uh, But when it comes to a civil case, and uh, let's say uh, you have uh, somebody complaining against a uh, neighbor for dumping garbage onto his land and causing uh, damage and so on, so. Uh, that person can uh, bring a civil case and uh, his remedy is in terms of uh, damages. So he would be paid uh, by way of compensation, whatever damage has been caused by the uh, defendant. The defendant uh, will not go to jail, the uh, defendant will not be fined, but he will have to pay uh, damages to the uh, plaintiff. So that's a broad distinction between criminal and uh, civil cases. So while on that, I think I would like also to mention that the case need not stop at the measures level or the uh, sessions courts level. Uh, because as you know, we also have the appeal system. Yeah, You're not happy with the uh, decision. You can appeal from the measures court and sessions court to the uh, high court and even to the court of appeal, because we do have a maximum of a two-tier, two-tier system. So um, people who feel that they have been wronged uh, can come to court. And uh, those who are in the wrong, well, uh, we felt forewarned because the law is there. There's no doubt about it. It's just a question of taking action under the law.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Dato. Um, Now, there is a question that has been raised uh, about, and uh, I understand if the panelists are not able to answer this, but I just felt that this is a good point in which I should insert it uh, because we're talking about how Parties can be made accountable for the wrongs that they do towards the environment. So, there's a question from Fazlina Pawante, where she's asking uh, could, Do you know of any best practices of, that other countries are doing and the types of effective enforcement strategies that have been uh, adopted that can be effective uh, for environmental offenses in Malaysia? Uh, perhaps I'll just open it to whoever can, can uh, give a comment.
4: Let me start. I mean, let me try. Uh, first, I think the penalty itself needs to be enhanced. I think, and we have made progress in under the Environmental Quality Act. Long time ago, the fines were like two thousand ringgit or three thousand ringgit. Now you see fines going into the hundreds of thousands. So that is progress. But I think personally, I think that is not high enough and we need to see higher penalties. And, but sometimes it's not, um, my experience would be sometimes the courts are not sympathetic towards the departments. The department I push for a higher fine, but the courts will give a much lower fine. So uh, the penalties needs to be significantly increased. The second problem that we need to deal with, I think as far as resources for enforcement, we simply do not have enough resources right and and what I think what the government has tried to do is try to get various different ministries to work together to go after the same culprit now, for example if just a factory pollution if you depend on department environment alone it's not going to happen there are hundreds of thousands of factories in the country and they simply do not have enough enforcement officers so the the strategy is how do we make use of multiple agencies and departments so that we pull resources and to go after the culprit if you depend on one department it's not going to happen yep thank you
3: okay let me try take a stab at that i mean um i think in terms of enforcement we don't have to look far our neighbors singapore are quite uh, good at you know making sure compliance is followed uh, by its citizens as well as it, uh, the industries that they have uh, with regards to environment uh, and, and uh, the pollution aspects um, to that quite strong from, from Singapore. And I think one country that you can look at for sure will be China, right? Um, so they are going strong in terms of moving towards um, how their resources are supposed to be managed sustainably and also addressing the pollutions, right? Um, so they're made headway for Beijing right? They've, they've shut down most of the industries um, so this is a recent event but I think the the fallback is to other surrounding countries like you know they've they've made improvements in terms of uh, stop receiving uh, plastics from other countries what you dispose of right but then the fallback I mean the, the ripple effects to all of us in this region um, so we have to look at where law by law itself um, so just looking at those two those two, two countries could be a start for us uh, in terms of moving forward. But our laws in the countries are very thorough, right? We have very good laws. Um, I think in the country, it's just a matter of enforcement and bringing them to court. Um, a lot of cases, they're just settled at the, you know, just paying the compound. And many a times you see the same culprit going to court, uh, but not having been prosecuted because they just say, okay, the, the judge will just say, ah, settle the fine, that's it. Uh, but it's the same uh, uh, company back and back again. So this has been reported uh, from one of my uh, friends who sits in to listen about environment courts and how it's proceeding.
2: I see. Yeah. I see. If, I, if I may add to that, uh, I Amin, mean, talking about the uh, uh, disposal of solid waste. Now, for the life of me, I cannot understand why Malaysia allowed the import of uh, solid plastic waste uh, into the country. And uh, I think uh, the former uh, minister did a marvelous job in returning uh, solid plastic waste to 13 countries. Can you imagine uh, countries around the world are treating us like a one big uh, rubbish dump? Already we have so much pl- uh, plastic waste generated by our own people, own public, and yet we are uh, importing uh, solid waste. Why? Because it's all because of money. And uh, people are greedy and they just can't stop trying to make more and more money. So I think when cases like that uh, occur, uh, the law should really be uh, implemented to the fullest and drag these people to court and um, maybe lock them up and throw away the key. I'm I'm exaggerating. But uh, uh, the other point which um, was raised by Dr. Bala is a question where uh, agencies bring cases to court and the courts are not uh, sympathetic I think there is a very good case to say that uh, magistrates and Sessions Court judges need uh, to have training uh, in um, environment, environmental issues, human rights issues. And it's all a question about uh, capacity building. One cannot assume that because you're appointed as a magistrate, appointed as a Sessions Court judge, you might be a very good lawyer, but you may have uh, little or no knowledge about uh, uh, environmental uh, issues and uh, human rights issues. So uh, capacity building must be ongoing. People must be sent for training and so on. Then I think uh, you will see a uh, difference and not just react when you are affected personally, you must look at the bigger picture and say, what can we do or what should we do um, when the whole community is uh, affected? Maybe on a last uh, word on that particular point is that we be all the time talking about uh, uh, protection of the environment and what the uh, how it's done. I think a lot more emphasis should be placed on prevention, uh, preventing uh, the commission of offences, rather than uh, trying to remedy the situation. Uh, a good example, we have all this river pollution, starting with Sungai Kim Kim, Sungai Gong, Sungai Suminye and uh, quite a few others recently. And uh, what happens is that everybody is running around to try to trace the polluter. Uh, I think we are many steps behind because uh, really when uh, 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 factories are allowed to be located near rivers and uh, water uh, sources, uh, all this should have been taken uh, uh, into account and uh, prevented. Don't give them licenses to have factories so near uh, riverbanks and so on. So it's all part of the prevention process. I I see, thanks.
1: I liked your comment about the judges, because, you know, we always assume judges know everything. But the reality is, of course, you know, uh, they are experts in their specific fields as well. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they might not be as, uh, I guess, not so familiar with environmental terms, for instance. Right, right. Now, uh, in the discussions that we've had, it's quite clear that the laws all exist. The laws that protect the environment exist. And we all now know that there are two basic arms that protect the environment in implementing the laws. So the executive arm, as we understand it, has the legal duties to plan, protect, and manage the environment. It is this arm that government bodies and agencies function under and where no- normal citizens can lodge complaints and reports. Whereas the judicial arm, like you mentioned at Omar, is where the court's criminal and civil function under. And this is where lawsuits are filed when other grievance mechanisms have have failed in the executive arm uh, to ensure that your rights are protected. Now, as ordinary citizens, you can and should file lawsuits under the civil courts uh, in in, in, uh, circumstances where you have been aggrieved. Now that brings us uh, to a close to our discussion, but we have some really good questions that have come up uh, from, uh, from our audience. I'll just go through them very quickly. Um, I think one which is relevant was uh, very relevant to what we have said and discussed just now. Remember, we're talking about public consultation. So there was a question from uh, an anonymous attendee Uh, he he or she is asking that whether it's possible that the implementation of the law be suggested from the bottom line, meaning the people, to the upper line, which is the government. Uh, Because uh, his or her view is that in order to make a decision about the environment, we need to involve more parties on board, especially those that have expertise uh, in a certain field. It is unfair to only have the politician or government as the decision maker. Uh, what are the panel's thoughts? Should I, I start first. Uh, I'll open that to the panel.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'll give it a go first. Yeah. No, uh, for it's my personally is my strongest belief that public participation is crucial, and we are we are not doing enough, and I think with greater public participation, many things will improve better enforcement, better planning, better design of projects and so on. But for public participation to improve, we need to do a few things. I think first, the public must be made aware that there are platforms for them and they can use that. At the moment, I think many people are not aware of the platforms that exist. There are many platforms and people must be made aware of them. And number two, on the government side, I think again, Public consultation is not something that everybody likes to do because it's never pleasant to deal with an angry person. Yep, so so public participation, public consultation, even people in the government private sector needs to be trained how to conduct public consultation. How do you handle a big crowd? How do you do town hall sessions? How do you handle public consultation so that you get effective feedback? And I think those are skills that are lacking at the moment, be it within government or the private sector. And that's something that I've always been pushing, that we need to build capacity on how to conduct public consultation so that we get meaningful feedback from the public. Thank you. I mean, if I may
2: uh, add to that, please. Um, one way uh, to have uh, consultation, uh, at least to have a platform to discuss uh, the issues, uh, is to um, attend uh, conferences or uh, RTDs, roundtable discussions and uh, webinars such as this, uh, which are being organized from time to time. Um, again, speaking about Suhakam, uh, we have been fairly active in uh, organizing uh, programs on the right to clean water, uh, climate change, environmental rights, and so on. And uh, these are made available to the public. You, Anyone who wants to uh, attend this uh, uh, sessions, most welcome, it's uh, free. And when we have this uh, dialogue uh, between uh, Soakam uh, commissioners and members of the public, uh, these are all recorded and uh, made into uh, or rather we come up with recommendations, recommendations after the uh, sessions. And these are then forwarded to the relevant uh, departments. So for departments who then turn and say, we don't know this or we don't know that, oh, we can always pull one out from the uh, drawer and say, look, we have been talking about this, you have been notified. So this is an ongoing uh, dialogue which uh, can be further enhanced. And of course the other is through social media. Uh, I suppose when you have consultation, you need to talk to somebody in particular, but when people post their comments and uh, add grievances, they are doing it uh, to um, the general public. But again, uh, many useful points can be picked up from the social media. You you get a pulse, you feel the pulse of how people think and why are people so angry, so annoyed about uh, certain issues. And uh, there's a question of uh, escalating and bringing up the issues uh, right up to the top to the people eventually it's uh, the Adun and the uh, MP that we should all catch hold of and say, hey, look, this is happening in your area. Don't just ignore it yeah, because uh, people will uh, have their say in the next five years. Yeah, so avenues exist. Ivy,
1: I think yes. you're about to say something.
3: Yes, yes. I'm um, Just uh, chipping into the point where Bala talked about, you know, public participation and public consultations. I think the whole point is everybody has a role to play, but we have to look at it from the point of being constructive. If you want to get anything done, you have to be constructive. I know sometimes uh, people are angry and they don't uh, see beyond that. But if you want to be more effective, you have to be constructive and you have to learn uh, to, to understand what's the situation, right? Um, for example, the the, the Slangor uh, Forestry Department's uh, public consultation requirement under the Act, that is from a point forward, right? That uh, law does is not retrospective. Right? Maybe a decision has been made in the past regarding a certain developments and it's only now that it's surfacing. So from the point of when the law has been sort of adopted, it's going forward. I don't think it's retrospective. So I think there's a lot of details that needs to be uh, unpacked uh, when you look at the issues and also the laws that can help uh, to, to prevent that. Um, as what Dr Ma mentioned, you know, when you come to the law side, it's already a prevention. So we should look at really, really, it's about earlier actions and preventing that from happening.
1: Thank you, Ivy. Now, I would love to go into more of the questions, uh, but I'm conscious of the time. We have now hit 9.30. There are about 10 more questions, but I think what we'll do, I hope the panelists, uh, I won't won't torture you with all 10. (laughs) And I uh, what we will do is we will uh, send these questions to you uh, privately, uh, and then perhaps you could spend some time giving uh, the answers so that we can uh, give them to our part, uh, the participants and listeners who are, are tuning in. Now uh, thank you very much for the input uh, and feedback that was that was uh, given. I don't have much time, but just to wrap up again. Through this exercise that we've had today, through this webinar, we've now identified uh, what are the laws and the laws exist. We've now identified the people who are responsible uh, uh, and have been given the mandate to enforce these laws. And we've also identified who are given the mandate or the responsibility to, to make sure that these laws are properly applied. And then, of course, in the course of our discussion also it was very clear to us of the role that the public should play too so um, this will actually be a nice way for us to leave off and else uh, um, segue very nicely to the next episode which Jaya will touch on uh, very shortly
0: all right thank you Ivy uh, Dr. Ma and Dr. Bala and Amin too for moderating the excellent uh, session, splendid discussions. I just wish we had more time to pick uh, the panelists' brains and to uh, unpack more of these uh, themes that were touched on uh, very briefly. Um, but yes, big thanks also to our audience out there for tuning in and putting forward excellent questions and comments. So please have our apologies for not being able to go through all of them. I hope you found the episode to be useful right, Um, in giving you an idea of how the law operates to protect and manage our environment. I hope this helps in building up a basic foundation for you in your understanding of environmental rights. The next episode of Bar Chats and Viral Rights will be episode three, happening on 4th November, this coming Wednesday at 4pm. The title is, Who Said It Is Easy? Accessing Environmental Justice. You see, we've so far described what our environmental rights are and how they work without going into their challenges and shortcomings in too much detail. In episode three, we go into that. This next episode will give a fuller picture of what the challenges are when somebody wants to enforce or protect his or her environmental rights or take action against any sort of environmental injustice. The aim of this upcoming episode is to help you be more effective in making the most of your rights under a system that may not be perfect. Now you can find the updates on the speakers and the upcoming episodes on the Bar Council Environment and Climate Change Facebook page. Please share, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Until we meet again next on the 4th of November, thank you all for tuning in. Have a very good evening. Thank you.